0: 15 years ago, solar manufacturing was a lot different than it was now. It was a lot more labor intense. It was not really automated. You literally had people on the line soldering each individual solder points in the module. With the automation of that process, it opened the door to bring factories back here to the U.S., but with higher skilled labor. So although you don't have as many people on the floor, you have a higher-skilled worker with more skills that are more engineering-focused, more technical-focused. Hey there,
1: Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth, So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. In a recent headline, which caught my attention, said supply chain challenges are prompting buyers to procure modules from new and inexperienced suppliers leading to quality issues. In that article, which of course I'll link you to, it highlights a recent study that was released in November of 2023, looking at more than 150 solar projects, nearly 300,000 solar PV modules. And what it says is that the most significant quality concern was around microcracks and that these macro cracks had a whopping 47% increase from 2022 to the first half of 23. This is electroluminescence testing. And the study by Clean Energy Associates goes into great detail about all the various types of microcracks, but for me it highlighted what I consider to be an underlying and ongoing concern in the industry, and that is this concept of new and inexperienced suppliers. In the article, it says analysts argue that while damage and defects can occur throughout the entire module lifecycle, several module buyers are procuring from new and inexperienced suppliers due to supply chain challenges, I- i.e., shortages or trade <laughs> trade barriers. And these lead to increased quality issues mm, quality issues so let's talk about these new and inexperienced suppliers shall we are they really inexperienced just because they are new to you how do you separate the wheat from the chef? well today i'm joined by my friend justin red longtime solar panel industry executive with more than a decade of experience working for industry leaders like sharp in fact that's where justin and i first met and he has a deep understanding of the module manufacturing sector and its complications. See, Justin was effectively retired from solar by all accounts, but I noticed recently that he had re-emerged into the industry as the head of sales and marketing for a company whose name I had never heard of before, a company called MV, which is an Indian manufacturer. We'll talk more about MV as well today. And I'd wager that many of you likely haven't heard of MV either, so. It piqued my interest and I reached out to Justin, said, hey man, would you help me understand your selection criteria, so to speak, of coming back off the bench, coming back to the solar industry to work for a company likely you had never heard of either. And today he's going to walk us through that decision criteria. What compelled him to jump back into the module business at this time and with this specific manufacturer? And what can we learn about how to vet manufacturers in the process? You see, since... MV definitely falls into that category mentioned above by the analyst as potentially perceived as new or inexperienced. My goal is to help you understand how to better evaluate these new market entrants and why the Bloomberg tier one list may no longer be the only or even best indicator of quality and bankability. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Thank you for tuning in to Suncast and welcome. If you're new here, I want to just express gratitude and appreciation that you are providing us your attention and granting us the one non renewable resource you've gotten that is your time, I promise we're gonna take good care of it. I hope that by the end of this episode, you will subscribe to the show like 1000s of others have. And that will ensure that you won't miss out on the twice weekly content just like this. Stories from the front lines of the clean energy transition with the leaders who are making it happen more than 650 such stories in our back catalog at mysuncast.com. But for now, Let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful, practical, tactical conversation here on Suncast. Justin, it's, as always, great to see you, my friend. Welcome to Suncast.
0: Thank you for having me. Great to see you.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, we've talked about this in private, but I have to say, given that, uh, you know, I was watching you uh, at rise as a, as a restaurateur and ATL and sort of off the off the radar from the solar industry. As I said in the intro, I was a bit surprised to see you jump back into the solar game. I'd love to, before we jump into the who, what, how, when, where, why, let's talk a bit about your experience. I mean, you and I met back, I think 2010, thanks to an intro from our friend Andrew, back when you were at Sharp. And you still sort of sit in my mind, I mean, obviously, Steyan and Sunflare, like you've had some amazing, Opportunities, but you still, in my mind, sort of that credibility was baked in from the time you were at Sharp and Tennessee. Could you talk a bit about your entree into solar more than a decade ago and the foundation that that gave you? Maybe walk us through the various iterations that really formed your understanding of how solar manufacturing writ large works.
0: So uh, fresh out of grad school, I was recruited to work for the Tennessee Solar Institute, where I ran a solar grant program. Uh, it was funded by funds from the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, passed in 2008, I believe. And at that time, Governor Bredesen and Commissioner Kisber had the vision to um, make Tennessee the hub for the solar value chain in the, in the United States. <clears throat> and so they heavily invested in recruiting. Uh, Everything from Mm Vocker to, uh, at the time, AGC Glass, um, heavily invested in keeping sharp in the state. Um, And then also making sure that there was a robust uh, installer base, developer base in the state to be able to have that complete solar value chain. So, like I said, fresh out of grad school, um, created the grant program from scratch. I believe it was called the uh, Solar Innovation Grant Program. And then from there, that's where I got familiar with the industry, Uh, started going to conferences, talking to various uh, engineers and executives throughout the industry, and really just teaching myself everything that I needed to know in order to be uh, a player in this industry. So from there, the team over at Sharp, which was based in Huntington Beach at the time, uh, Ron Kennedy uh, and then Mike Lasky. Uh, asked me to come over and uh, manage sales in the southeast uh, out of the plant, which was in Memphis. So that was my hometown. Yeah. So it was really important for me to be able to go back to Memphis, uh, be able to actually see the modules being made, have a connection with the workforce there, but then still be able to interact with all of my colleagues out in the California office.
1: What a great uh, entree to the industry. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned Commissioner Kisper who's Matt Kisper, one of the co-founders of Silicon Ranch, one of the great solar developers of our time and of Tennessee. And definitely in many ways, he and Reagan and uh, Governor Bredesen uh, responsible for the sort of awakening of the Southeast to the solar market. I would encourage anybody who hasn't listened to Reagan Farr's episode on Suncast, uh, we'll link to it, go check it out. And it goes way more into the backstory of what Justin uh, briefly introduced us to. At that time, what stood out to you around manufacturing what it takes to stand it up how uh yeah, how hard i'd say local manufacturing there's a lot in the news these days about local domestic reshoring of solar panel manufacturing you and i've been in the industry long enough to watch shot sharp shell uh, many other companies to start with sh <laughs> all uh, bp right. etc <laughs> all uh, move move uh, close their factories and move back uh, to southeast asia
0: Yeah, I'm somewhat of a uh, factory geek. Like I've been to various manufacturing plants, modules, inverters, Mm. uh, food and beverage, uh, just something about manufacturing, the physicality of just making something that interests me. And so to be able to be that close to the factory and then again, see as I go out to sell a project to see those modules be made, a person to be able to clock in for their job, get their paycheck for the week and be able to provide for their family. It just makes it full circle for me. So uh, 15 years ago, solar manufacturing was a lot different than it was now. It was a lot more labor intense. Mm. It was a lot of, it was not really automated. I mean, you literally had people on the line soldering each individual solder points in the module. And so around 2012, Sharp invested heavily in amorphous silicon, uh, which is a uh, thin film. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Stion was... Coming around, first solar was being introduced. And the thin film manufacturing process is a lot less labor intensive and more automated. So, what it did was it forced the silicon manufacturers to automate their uh, processes, or else they get left behind in terms of their ability to output modules in a cost effective manner. So, I think with the automation and robotization of the solar manufacturing process, it enabled manufacturers to put together a cost structure that made sense to be able to manufacture here in the U S obviously labor is cheaper elsewhere in the world than it is in the in United States. So if you have a labor intensive manufacturing process that makes it a challenge, but with the automation of that process, it opened the door to bring factories back here to the U S uh, but with higher skilled labor. So although you don't have as many people, uh, on the floor, you have a higher skill worker with um, with 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 more skills that are more engineering focused, more technical focused.
1: So, put me at place in time where Justin, not been in the solar industry, effectively retired from the solar game, gets a phone call that prompts him to reconsider the industry as an opportunity, and eventually come back to the fold.
0: So, after COVID. Hit. Uh, I was at Sunflare and you know it was a challenge. The industry was pretty much at a standstill. Uh, I was also working for a Chinese manufacturer. Sunflare is a Chinese manufacturer. It was also at the time, so it was the restrictions of COVID, it was the um, tariffs from the Trump administration on all goods coming out of China. So for me, it was the culmination of maybe this just isn't the industry uh, for me. I had always had other businesses here in Atlanta, whether it was the gym that I owned or um, the what is currently a restaurant. So I took a step back to be able to actually really focus on building the restaurant because COVID actually hit restaurant industry really hard mm-hmm. as well. So it gave me the opportunity to focus on the restaurant. So I was doing that for a while, and actually two years. I had been out of the industry for two years. And I received a phone call from Kristen Murthy, which is the head of HR at Envy uh, from India. And it's just an Indian number on my phone. I was like, we're, you know, we're just uh-huh. Indian number calling me for. So I picked up the phone and he said, hey, we want to talk to you about a company called Envy. And I listened and we had a couple of calls that did my due diligence. Uh, they provided me all types of information on the factory. Um, at the time, they were in the process of completing Unit 2, which is our more automated factory. Uh, and it was a very compelling story. Walk me through,
1: what did that due diligence look like? You, I imagine, like I or many others, would have looked with a little bit of skeptical nature at the likelihood of jumping back in to a brand that not only a company from India, but a brand you'd never heard of. There are plenty, Wari, v like they're recognizable brands from India. Mm-hmm. And yet, as I said in the intro, it calls, my, it calls to me that someone I respect, trust, somebody I know who has a very like, a geek-minded approach to an understanding of the manufacturing process, walk me through so that others could appreciate and benefit from what that due diligence might've looked like for you.
0: Yeah, so really started with the basics of, are you ISO 9001 certified? Are you ISO 14001 st- uh, certified? Um, can you send me just the straight-up copy of your uh, quality assurance plan? Are you UL certified? Send me your UL certificate. So then from there, got a little bit deeper, um, looked to see if they were listed on Bloomberg. They had not been because they hadn't done business in the United States yet. Uh, but they had completed a factory audit, bankability audit from DMVGL. So they sent me that report. And then they told me that CEA had taken them on as a client, which CA doesn't take on just any manufacturer. Yeah. And so those were kind of like the checkboxes for me that this is uh, this is a very interesting opportunity.
1: So if I've captured it right, that's at least six steps that anyone could follow. ISO 9000, mm-hmm. 14000. Quality assurance plan, UL certs listed on Bloomberg as tier one, factory audit by third party engineering, quality assurance uh, uh, audit by third party engineering firm. Uh, Anything else that you did, like reaching out to your network? How else did you really think about vetting the opportunity with this Indian manufacturer?
0: FTC and MV have a very special relationship. Okay, They're not part of the same company, but they have board members that are very close, and so I reached out to my good friend, Brian Coker, who I worked with at Sharp. I've known him for over 15 years. Yeah. I call him my brother from another oh, mother. A fellow and ATL, solo warrior. <laughs> he said, so Brian, tell me about this company, Envy. And he said, oh man, this is, this, is, this, is a, this is a company that you should take a look at. How did you know that Envy had a, a relationship with FTC? When I was speaking with Suhas in our conversations, he had mentioned that um, they worked closely with FTC. FTC, because at the time when Envy started selling into the U.S. market, there was no U.S. personnel. And so they entered into a distribution agreement with Soligent, but they relied on FTC to kind of guide them in the U.S. market before actually bringing me on board and allowing me to build my team.
1: Got it. So I just added two more to the list. So we're now to eight. Vetted partnerships. Are there any mm-hmm. that you can dig deeper on? vetted connections at those partner companies. So, um it's peeling back the layers of the onion when MV disclosed that they had a relationship with FTC, which is a question you need to ask, who are you working with? Who else is pulling your product through? I imagine you thought, well, do I still know anybody at Soligent where you once worked? Probably did some due diligence there as you just disclosed, and then turns out good buddy Brian Coker at FTC could peel back the, the onion a little further for you on their experience and why they're working with, uh, with the manufacturer. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Anything from a trade or policy perspective stood out to you that you also, uh, either specifically looked for or uh, was revealed or uncovered in the process?
0: Well, I think the biggest thing was that it wasn't a Chinese manufacturer Mm -hmm. and working for a Chinese manufacturer, having to deal with the Trump administration tariffs, the, um, countervailing duties, the um, UFPLA restrictions. That was something that made it very interesting and compelling that I didn't have to worry about with working with envy.
1: You know, presently, the trade relationship between India and the U.S. is the strongest it's ever been. Is there anything that you uncovered about the sort of the rise of India and the strengthening of that relationship in lieu of? Uh, a stronger relationship with China that also compelled you. I'm curious, t- I'm just going to keep be- be- pulling back these layers as we think through how you came to the decision. This definitely looks like a compelling opportunity.
0: I mean, the trade relations between India and U.S., you're right, are the strongest they've ever been. As a matter of fact, we just hosted Prime Minister Modi a couple of months ago here in the U.S. for a state dinner. Um, they're working on trade agreements. and looking at the Indian culture, I think that one thing that I've been able to recognize is their pride in the quality or their pride in the work that they do. And so just kind of doing my research on Indian history and their um, eagerness to become a world superpower and their um, eagerness to prove themselves on the world stage definitely led to uh, me having a favorable opinion.
1: Okay. So I've got, ISO 9000, 14,000, quality assurance plan, UL certifications, Bloomberg T1, factory audit, third-party quality assurance, in this case, CEA, vetted partnership, vetted connections at those partnerships, trade relations, i.e. ease of doing business, and then cultural fit. Mm -hmm. So That's 10 really quality steps that one can think through really when evaluating any potential partner, whether it's. China, Vietnam, India, you name it. For sure. And increasingly, I think every procurement manager has got to think about this. The Mm -hmm. Bloomberg tier one list no longer, in my opinion, and I think you'd probably agree, stands as the only seal of approval, especially in a world where (laughs) your major top three, four, five manufacturers are effectively sold out of modules if your name isn't. Next era, or Clearway, or you know, name one of the big guys, Brookfield. It's hard for certainly the mid-tier, anyone twenty megawatts and under, to find vetted suppliers who can partner with them and provide quality backed by a seal like DNV or, or CEA. So let's dig in. Let's let's do this little myth busting. I'll call this myth busting for module procurement. How do you, in fact, define and measure? quality. You mentioned ISO 9000, 14000. Let's dig down a little deeper to the quality of engineering and what one needs to look
0: for. You evaluate quality. You know, obviously have all these third party bodies to come in and do factory audits, whether it's the DMVGL, the CEA, a STS. And then, you know, any manufacturing plant is going to have ISO 9001, 14001, which is really quality management standards. But then just the physical of solar manufacturing and the fact that we're dealing with um, such sensitive materials, mm-hmm. you've got to make sure that the factory is almost a clean room, if not a 100% clean room. And I'm talking about very clean cotton hairnets, mm-hmm. uh, cotton shoe covers, uh, cotton gloves, all throughout the manufacturing process. Some manufacturer stop at the, those measures when the module is laminated. Uh, But at Envy, we make sure that we have that throughout the entire manufacturing process. So, yeah, when it comes to defining and measuring quality, quality is just having reliable products that don't need servicing that always do what you bought them for. Uh, And then you measure that in our industry through uh, RMA claims. Mm -hmm. And so at MV, we have an RMA rate of less than 0.3% when I think the industry standard is somewhere between 1% and 2% depending on the technology and the manufacturer. If I may play the devil's
1: advocate, for those who are completely unfamiliar as I was, what's the volume that MV produces?
0: So our annual capacity is three gigawatts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have 1.5 gigawatts of cell capacity coming on uh, later this year. I was just in Bangalore uh, about a month ago to see the new factory and to see the cell line. And I was, I was really impressed. So you yeah, have three gigawatts annually here, I mean, in India, and then 1.5 gigawatts of cell manufactured capacity.
1: Is it fair then to assume that with increased production, you've got Trina and Longy and others producing an excessive, you know, 25 to 50 gigawatts a year that many may say, well, Envy just doesn't produce enough to have more than a 1% claim rate.
0: When it comes to RMA claim rates, the fact that it's measured in percentage of production is normalized for whether you have a large production facility or a smaller production facility.
1: I want to come back to the, the tier one piece because, you know, when I interviewed Martin, one of the things that he pointed out was that actually a strategic pivot that they made was getting on the tier one list and focusing on um, financier, financiers who procured from the tier one list exclusively. In today's sort of trade policy constrained market, even if you wanted to, it's hard to buy off the tier one list exclusively because there simply is a there's more demand in the market than supply to fulfill it um, for a lot of reasons. Are there examples of major developers being able to secure financing for modules outside of Tier One? If so, it seems like that would be a that would be an argument for seriously considering vetting sort of non-Tier One vendors.
0: Absolutely, we're uh, either in late stage communication with, are talking to, have spoken with reached out to uh, the top 20 or 30 developers here in the U S uh, most of the sophisticated developers have their own due diligence process mm-hmm. that probably really doesn't even to take into account Bloomberg new energy finance. If you got to be honest, yeah. uh, some of them outsource their betting to the likes of a CEA or a uh, Achilles. Um, so yes, there are, we are, in late stage communications with developers here in the United States, who we've passed their due diligence. We have been listed as an approved vendor. Their procurement person can pick up the phone and send us a PO at any time. And there are projects that are going to be in process in the near term uh, where those projects have been financed with MV modules.
1: You know, one of the things I love that you said is that Tier One is a guide for sort of financial strength, but not quality. And we did an episode uh, back in uh, the summer <clears throat> which talked about the pvel reliability test which envy uh showed up on this year uh as a for the first year it's only nine years old but um, but one of the things that was interesting because in that in that conversation tristan specifically used envy as an example of an indian manufacturer who Though apparently smaller than many peers, shows the same or better levels of quality and reliability in the product. Going back to your point on the RMA, um, so I may add, I may add to the checklist: Are they on PVEL's reliability list? Frankly, um, just as a nod, I think PVEL and Tristan are doing a great job there.
0: Yeah, and then not even just the being on the PVEL module scorecard, but we've also signed up for their. I believe it's called the Quality Partners Program. Yeah. To where any developer installer can reach out to PVEL and track our testing results mm. real time.
1: Oh, fantastic. Yeah. But one of the, you know, what the, what the uh, article in question at the outset calls into question is this concept of micro cracks. It's something that PVEL tests extensively. And uh, I just want to know how. Is the industry at large addressing microcrack remediation, specifically at the manufacturing level?
0: I got to be honest. I haven't been to another module plant in a couple of years, but I can tell you uh, how we're addressing it. Sure. We have, um, number one, it's about the construction of the module. Mm-hmm. You can't use the cheapest materials, can't use the cheapest glass, can't use the cheapest back sheet. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is we have a sixth, visual quality control checks throughout the uh, module manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. So that's how you address it for the most part throughout the manufacturing process. Um, Our modules have, most manufacturers do the IEC uh, lifecycle testing two times. Our module, we did it three times and it still outperformed other modules. So we're really confident in our ability to address micro cracks. And then when we've got our packaging, I mean, this is custom packaging. Um, the modules fit snugly inside of the packaging. Mm-hmm. They're shrink wrapped. They've got the bands on there. Yeah. So yes, modules do travel very far in some instances from country to country, mm-hmm. shipping containers, uh, and then you put them on the road, Bumps on the road. So packaging really matters. I've seen, I've gone to customers' warehouses and I've seen packages that just show up and it looks like just like a fast food bag that you shipped across the world.
1: Yeah. I've seen, I've seen numerous uh, pallets that are just shrink, shrink wrapped pallets, modules stacked on top of one another. Um, Mm -hmm. It it really does uh, come in all types and sizes and from my manufacturers that would surprise you. They're shipping that way. Uh, So what I hear is there are constructive ways to know whether or not a manufacturer has taken a concerted effort and steps towards the kind of manufacturing and shipping process that would eliminate or reduce the number of micro-cracks, which as we all know is one of the growing uh, and most concerning issues in the module, in the field right now with regards to O&M. And, uh, and I think it's probably the biggest concern that most vendors would have, or purchasers would have by vendors that haven't been vetted in other ways, you know, namely if they aren't on the tier one list, for example. You know on this qu- topic of packaging you know it really does matter when you're shipping from india or china to the us and um i think that one not only with the current trade uh barriers creating uh you know entire ships of modules being turned around at the port and sent back um it underscores the one of the main reasons why folks are beginning to near shore again if not here in the U.S. than uh, in Canada or Mexico. How then does someone of MV's size compete with the likes of Jinko, Q-Cells, Trina, uh, all of whom for solar, all of whom are announcing major manufacturing facilities here in the U.S.?
0: Well, I don't want to get ahead of my skis here, but that was one of the other reasons. I think the final stamp of approval that uh, made me come on to MV is the plans for a U.S., Uh, factory here Mm -hmm. so we'll have an announcement soon Mm -hmm. and we're really close we're a conservative company so we don't we don't like to announce officially until it's built up and running ready to ship but we'll have we'll have some announcements soon
1: fair enough fair enough i won't i won't make you divulge more than you're comfortable with i know in the conversations we've had that the decision is specifically to show rather than tell so uh, that that certainly, for me, was one of the things that popped into my mind when I saw that you had decided to join uh, a manufacturer that I'd never heard of and uh, I would imagine would would be one of those standout moments uh, and questions you'd have, was, which is, well, what are you going to do here in the U.S.? I think it's a smart choice picking someone like you who helped Stion and Sunflare with their U.S. facilities and um, and worked... <laughs> in the industry when uh, it essentially helped to save Valker and Sharp from shutting down their plants a few years uh, too soon, right? But I'd like to take a moment for those who are completely unfamiliar with India and sort of get a little bit more precise geographically, put me in the time and place of the first time that you visited the MV uh, facilities in India.
0: So, yeah, India. Well, MV is located in Bengaluru, which is in the southern part of India. And so, my first time going was shortly after I came on board. I went over to meet the executive team face to face. And I remember booking my flight. I'm a Delta Airlines guy. I love flight Delta Airlines. My uh, Suhas, our president and CEO, said, No, you don't want to fly Delta. You know, you can go through Paris, but you should fly Qatar Airways. So, it was my first time flying Qatar Airways. So, I landed at the Bengaluru Airport, not knowing what to expect. Uh, Surprisingly, most people speak English. Uh, The airport in Bangalore is beautiful. It rivals any international airport, uh, probably exceeds most international airports uh, here in the U.S. And I'm walking out of the airport looking for my MV driver who's standing there waiting with me, Mm. waiting for me with an MV sign. And I look around and I notice all these other drivers with the names of Fortune 500 companies, where there's Boeing, American Express, Intel. So in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, this is, uh, you know, a lot of American companies are doing business, at least in this part of India.
1: Yeah. And for those who are unfamiliar, Bangalore is effect- effectively the, the Silicon Valley of India.
0: Yes. So it's this often referred to as the Silicon Valley of India. They've got tremendous resources in terms of talent mm. and labor pool. Yeah. Uh, most of their, like Suhas, our president and CEO, left after secondary school, came to the US to go to college, get educated, and then went back to uh, India to build their family's companies, go and work for an American company, what have you.
1: And having become a self-proclaimed factory geek, having gone and inspected factories for inverters and modules in Japan, the US, China, is there anything that stands out for you? Having now the opportunity to at least go visit the MV facilities, haven't? I, I don't presume that you've gone to other competitor facilities in India.
0: So no, I haven't had a chance to visit other module manufacturing plants in India. Uh, but compared to the facilities that I have been to in China, the U.S., um, it's uh, a relative clean room. It is uh, a lot more advanced, uh, a lot cleaner, uh, and just literally fully automated. I believe Unit 2 is about 95% automated. And then unit three, when it comes online with our cell uh, facility as well, will be around like 99% automated. And when I say clean room, I mean, you could literally put your sandwich on the floor, pick it up, and i feel comfortable eating it.
1: Justin, I'm so grateful to have a moment to ask these questions to you. Is there anything else that you would want folks to know before we sign off?
0: Well, I just would extend the invitation to our fellow solar warriors. If you haven't visited India or thought about visit India, feel free to come over. We'll host you at the factory. We'll take you to some great places to eat and we'll have a good time.
1: Fantastic. Well, it sounds like there might be a delegation uh, opportunity to go visit the MV factories in Bangalore. I for, for sure will put my name first on the list if that trip comes together. If you'd like to join that list, then shoot me an email, Nico at Or Justin, what's your email?
0: Uh, my email is justin.red, that's R-E-D-D, at E-M-M-V-E-E dot I-N, justin.red and M V dot I-N.
1: Fantastic. We'll list all those resources, of course, in the show notes, as we always do. Justin, thank you so much for taking time to help dispel and bust some of these module procurement myths and set the record straight on buying from lesser known Indian manufacturers. Thanks, Nico. Well, there you have it, Solar Warriors. If you, like me, had a sense of skepticism, and I'm sure you did, a healthy one at that, about working with any of the Indian manufacturers' names that you've known, names that are popping up, like MV, Wari, Vison, and you just aren't sure, or someone in your team needs to become sure about how do you vet off tier one list vendors, now i hope you're more well equipped if you'd like to grab that checklist again go to mysuncast.com forward slash emmvee and it'll forward you to a landing page of course you have to share your email justin and his team will fire that list off to you so that you can have a guide beyond this that you can pass around to your team or your colleagues uh, and help them better vet suppliers and this is good for not just module suppliers as well and, uh, of course, email us if you would like to be a part of a delegation, if we put one together, to go over to India. I am definitely excited that Justin offered that and would love to bring a few of you along. I don't know what the quorum would look like for us to pull the trigger on it. But if you never email us, we never start to put that list together. So please email justin.redd at emmvee.in or Nico Com, And let's see if we can make it happen. Listen, all the resources are over at mysuncast.com. Click on the show notes tab. Leave your thoughts on a LinkedIn post that we no doubt have placed online by now. If you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, the full video recording, including the image that Justin shared of that truck carrying the first MV modules to clients in the US is uh, online. We'll link to all of that right in the description of whatever podcast player you are in right now. Hey, thank you so much. Take a moment and click click that button to subscribe and also rate and review the show if you would uh, be so kind that's how others can find us just like you have we are here to educate inform inspire bring folks into the clean energy revolution thank you to our sponsors who help make this show possible each and every week if you'd like to join us go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor and as always remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solo warrior It's half the battle.